Today we're going to talk about, um, this, this is going to be kind of unusual for a uh, Otter Creek Sunday School class. Today we're going to talk about a little Buddhist monk whose name is Thich Nhat Hanh. I, was, uh, I first became aware of Thich Nhat Hanh, um, I don't know, not, not too long ago, a few years ago. Scott Owings introduced me to uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. And uh, if any one person characterizes the beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, I think it is this little Buddhist monk named Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, I know that Randy Harris, those of y'all who are familiar with Randy Harris, uh, is a big fan of Thich Nhat Hanh, has been to retreats that Thich Nhat Hanh has led. Um, and I know Randy Harris one time said that if all Christian preachers would preach the gospel as clearly as Thich Nhat Hanh, that the church would be in a lot better shape than it currently is. Um, even though Thich Nhat Hanh is not part of the Christian tradition, he is very comfortable using Christian language. And he is very um, careful to talk about how the kingdom of God is not some distant thing to wait for, but it is a present reality uh, if we're able to tap into it. So um, what I would like for us to begin with, and again, not, not your typical Sunday school class, but Thich Nhat Hanh, like all, Bud uh, all Buddhist teachers, is big into meditation. And so I just, off the internet, pulled one of his meditations. Now I'd like for that to be our opening prayer this morning. And the thing that I like about the way that Thich Nhat Hanh does these, for those of you who are familiar, you know, it's very, um, you know, when, when Jesus tells us, uh, or Paul tells us to pray for our enemies, um, that's not something that I feel like we train ourselves to do very well. Uh, but Thich Nhat Hanh has found an interesting way to do it. And so what we will do is we will begin with a prayer for ourselves. And then we will pray the same thing for a loved one, maybe a family member or a good friend. And then we'll be able to pray the same prayer for an enemy. Or if you can't think of an enemy, somebody that just irritates you. Somebody at work or in your family or here at church that just gets on your nerves. And then the prayer expands to all of creation, to all living beings. Uh, so we'll take just a moment. Um, another thing about Thich Nhat Hanh, he's big into focusing on our breathing. And so uh, what we'll do is as we begin, you might just want to close your eyes, take a couple of deeper than normal breaths, and just kind of feel that in-breath, feel that out-breath. That, that tends to kind of focus your attention and then I will lead us in this brief, but I think very helpful meditation. So let's take a moment, take a couple of breaths, and, I, and we'll begin. May all living, I'm sorry, may I, have a calm, clear mind and a peaceful, loving heart. May I be safe from internal and external harm. May I be free from attachment and aversion, but not be indifferent. 
May I experience love, joy, wonder, and wisdom in this life just as it is. And now you may want to bring to mind someone you love, a spouse, a child, a friend. May my loved one have a calm, clear mind and a peaceful, loving heart. May they be safe from internal and external harm. May they be free from attachment and aversion, but not be indifferent. May my loved one experience love, joy, wonder, and wisdom in this life just as it is. And now bring to mind someone who troubles you. May this person have a calm, clear mind and a peaceful, loving heart. May this person be safe from internal and external harm. May this person be free from attachment and aversion but not be indifferent. May this person experience love, joy, wonder, and wisdom in this life just as it is. And finally, for all creation we pray, may the world have a calm, clear mind and a peaceful, loving heart. May all living beings be safe from internal and external harm. May all of creation be free from attachment and aversion, but not be indifferent. And finally, may all of creation experience love, joy, wonder and wisdom in this life just as it is. Amen. Well, thank you for doing that uh, with me. If it was uncomfortable for you, I'm sorry. But it's something that those, those kinds of little meditations you can do as you drive and, and I've, I've found them to be very helpful. Thich Nhat Hanh was born in Vietnam in 1926. He entered a Buddhist monastery in Vietnam when he was 16 years old, which I guess would have been what, 1942. In the 1950s, he began focusing his work on young people. He helped to build schools and clinics in rural areas of Vietnam. Um, and then in 1960 is when his kind of international peace working really uh, started. He came to the United States to study religion at Princeton University and he lectured on Buddhism at Columbia University. Then in 1963, after his experience in the States, he returned to Vietnam to work with other monks and some of these young people uh, on nonviolent peace efforts regarding the North and South Vietnamese conflict. Of course, he continued his teaching about Buddhism um, he was still very much focused on the peace work 
as things were getting worse and worse in Vietnam, he and his disciples uh, were working harder and harder. In 1966, he returned to the United States because he had been invited to speak at Cornell University. Um, and this is where his story really kind of gets interesting to me. He, uh, in 66, he went to the Abbey of Gethsemane up in Kentucky, uh, where Thomas Merton, who we talked about in week one, Thomas Merton was a Trappist monk up in Kentucky. And so while Thich Nhat Hanh is in the States, he makes a point of going to Gethsemane to meet with Thomas Merton. Um, Merton was floored by his experience with Thich Nhat Hanh, and he ended up writing um, sort of an appeal on behalf of Thich Nhat Hanh called Thich Nhat Hanh is my brother, uh, because by this time Vietnam was really getting irritated with Thich Nhat Hanh's work, and they were threatening to not allow him to return to the country, to his home. And, and Merton writes this beautiful appeal you know, to this, this is a wonderful person, uh, he's doing wonderful work, uh, and he goes so far as to say that he and I see things exactly the same way. Also during 1966, Thich Nhat Hanh met with Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and urged him to publicly denounce the Vietnam War. Martin Luther King was also really, really affected by Thich Nhat Hanh. He had never publicly spoken out against the Vietnam War until after he met with Thich Nhat Hanh. And in 1967, that's when Martin Luther King gave his famous speech at the Riverside Church in New York City in which he, for the first time, took issue with American involvement in Vietnam. And that same year, Martin Luther King nominated Thich Nhat Hanh for the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, but no prize was awarded that year. Um, in his nomination, Martin Luther King said, I do not personally know of anyone more worthy of this prize than this gentle monk from Vietnam. His ideas for peace, if applied, would build a monument to, uh, to ecumenism, to world brotherhood, and to humanity. In the early 70s, despite you know, these uh, recommendations from very important folks, in the early 70s, Thich Nhat Hanh was denied permission to return to Vietnam. He was, uh, he was exiled from his home for decades, but he continued his work of caring for Vietnamese refugees, people who were fleeing the country uh, and taking care of those folks. Around this time and just after this time, the 70s, the 80s, is when Thich Nhat Hanh really began focusing on his, his writing. He had always written, but he really focused in on teaching and writing. He established a number of monasteries and teaching centers, including Plum Village in France, which is where he made his home. Uh, like all Buddhist masters, he talks at length about the need for mindfulness and awareness again on focusing on breathing as a way to uh, return to the present moment. Um, it's interesting, you know, when you do that, you know, when you stop and you think about in-breath, out-breath, how, how that zeroes you in on the present moment. On, and, and that's very much in line with, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, very comfortable moving uh, with Buddhist language and with Christian language. And so he's very quick to pick up on when Christian language talks about breath, you know, when the, the word for spirit is breath, you know, he's like, there's something there, you know, pay attention, stay awake to this sort of stuff. Um, one of the things that I've found most helpful about Thich Nhat Hanh is the way that he looks very deeply into the nature of reality and to see it for what it is. Um, 
he is very quick to point out how oftentimes the things that we um, think are one way really might be a, another way or maybe there's a better way of thinking about them. Maybe the way that we typically look at things is kind of an illusion, uh, especially if you think that these things are all separate. Uh, so, so for example, Thich Nhat Hanh would say typically when we look at a flower we think it's very separate from garbage. Flowers are pretty, garbage is not. Flowers smell good, garbage does not. Thich Nhat Hanh though says when you look at a flower you should see garbage. When you look at garbage, you should see a flower. Because as any gardener knows, you take refuse and that becomes the, the context in which a flower can bloom. And when the flower dies, it will wither away and it will become refuse. And so he, he wants to talk about how things, you know, th that flower is not going to remain in the state that it is. It's going to change. But that doesn't mean it ceases to exist. Uh, he would also say, I remember as I was preparing for this, I went and reread re part of a book, and, and he said, when you look at your ice cream, if you look deeply enough, you can see a cloud. Because the cloud brings the rain, and the rain makes the grass grow, and the cows eat the grass, and the cows give milk, and we take the milk, and we make ice cream. It's like if you will just take the time to look deeply into things, you'll see that you know, everything you have, I mean, everything you need is right there in front of you. You can look at the tomato on your sandwich and you can see you know, a farmer. You can see the sun because the sun nourishes the tomato plants. You can look at your hand and you can see your ancestors. Uh, so there's even one, one point in this book where he says, it's real simple, but I want to quote it. He said, um, you, you are a wonderful manifestation. The whole universe has come together to make your existence possible. We don't, we don't think about that. But we think, you know, you think about the sun and the rain and, you know, just the food that I eat and I, how I convert it into energy. I can look at myself and I can see animals and I can see plants and I can see stars. Um, so he, he's very um, willing to pause and look deeply into things and just see how magnificent our existence is and how nothing is separate. Um, like other Buddhist teachers, he talks a lot about suffering. Suffering is you know, one of his main topics that he wants to address and that suffering is often the result of attachment. And so I want to pause here and I want to ask about attachment. I think this is one of the most important lessons that we can learn and, and one of the things we neglect the most in the church is to talk about our attachments and how they can lead to suffering. And so what do y'all think? What kind of attachments, what kind of things do we grasp that might lead to suffering? Sure, yeah, when you're pursuing really anything too much, obsessing over it. What do you see in your life or in the lives of people that you care about that you think might be an attachment that has led to some suffering? Sports, how so? 
Okay. Playing sports that aren't good for your body. What else? I think raising, like raising kids, you want them to be a certain way, and so you try to control different things so that the outcome that you want will, will occur. And in doing that, you wrestle with that, and um, it creates a lot of stress because things don't end up the way you like. Yeah, yeah. Wanting things to be, wanting people to be different from what they are. Uh, anybody familiar, a little more familiar with Buddhism generally or Thich Nhat Hanh? Want to offer anything about attachments? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's an excellent point. Um, anytime you, a house is a great example. Anytime you build a house or remodel a house, so much, I mean, it's exhausting, you know, because you have to pick out everything, you know. Uh, and these things change. Like my wife right now, since she's not in here, <laughs> we, have, we have a dining room in our house and uh, when we moved into our house, it was just kind of a neutral color, and so she wanted to put up a chair rail, and she wanted to paint the top part beige and the bottom part red. And so I did that for her, and she was very happy. But a few years have gone by, and she's not happy with that color anymore, and she wants me to redo the dining room, you know. And, uh, and I told her, I said, well, I guess I'm willing to do that, but can you guarantee me that that will be it, you know? And she, and she can. <laughs> so we're going to do it, you know, and then we may do it again and again. But if we can stay in my house, I'm okay with that. I, just, I don't want to move again, you know. So, But, yeah, we, we obsess over the little things. Um, other, other thoughts about attachments? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes. Making a name for ourselves. Working our way up, absolutely. Even Wealth. Our person, even our appearance, the way we look or the way others perceive us, um, we deny that we're getting older. Yes. That's a lot of stress. Yeah, attachment <coughs> to looking the way that somebody else has told me I should look. Yeah. Um, one of the harder ones. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about our attachment to judgment. Uh, and he doesn't just mean judging others as, as saying, you're wrong or you're less than me. He talks about just having a judging mind. How we always have to know what we think about everything all the time. And I'll give you a, 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 a couple of examples of that. Um, 
I have been friend. I, I this has happened to me, and I've been friends with people, probably a lot of y'all, who have really experienced some pretty drastic changes in how you think about God, from when you were young, teenager, early twenties, to where you are now. And a number of these friends of mine who have kind of gone through this, it's it's very uh, distressing to them because they want to know exactly what they think about God. And if my idea of God has changed, I need a new idea of God right now. Uh, it's very uncomfortable to say, well, I don't really know. And so if I, if I move past the idea that God is like a big policeman or a big Santa Claus in the sky, and I start questioning, then I want to, to have made up my mind. I want a new idea immediately about what God is. Um, I've had family members who uh, have kind of stopped believing that there is a place of eternal punishment. But that becomes distressing sometimes because, well, if there's not, then, excuse me, then why are we doing any of this, right? It's like we have to feel like we know something even if it's unknowable, like the nature of God. Your idea about God is not God. Your idea about hell, I mean, whether there is a hell or is not a hell, it's not like what I think about it is going to make a difference to the, to the final analysis, right? If I believe there is and it turns out there's not, I can't change it. Or if I think there's not and it turns out that there is, but we want to have in our minds this idea, you know. Um, if, if you stop believing that Adam and Eve are real people, and you think, well, that's, that's, a, that's a, a myth that ancient people told to explain how things came to be. You know, do you then immediately have to say, well, now I know they were not real people. You know, so the judging mind, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh would say, we become attached to our ideas about things that we might never really be able to know for certain about. And then we, we behave violently towards people who don't share our, our ideas. So it's like we're attached to being right. Um, doctrines and beliefs. Uh, also expectations like Greg was talking about, expectations of other people but just expectations of what my life should be like. Uh, one of the best and, and most, it's, it's a kind of a silly example but it's a, an excellent example, there's a guy named Gordon Pierman um, who has written some about the, the relationship between Christianity and Buddhism and he said that he was up on a, a canoe trip in Alaska and he was sitting on this very, very tranquil lake and the mountains were reflecting and he, he said it was just one of those amazing moments where he felt completely at peace and happy. And then he thought, oh, I wish my wife and kids could be here to see this. And all of a sudden, the moment started to suffer because he wished it was something else than what it was. You know, his expectations had, had changed a little bit and it caused him to, to suffer. You know, not suffer like suffer when you're being tortured, but you know, to, to not feel content, to not feel complete, you know. Well, we all miss people, you know. It's not like that was wrong of him, but he wanted to recognize what was causing him to not be as happy in that moment. And it was just wishing that the moment were different from what it is. And again, that comes back to Thich Nhat Hanh with the emphasis on breathing, you know. Uh, if you can focus on the, the in-breath, the out-breath. I mean, he says things like, breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. Resting in this moment, 
I know this is a wonderful moment. As just a way to kind of be where you are and not wish that you were somewhere else, right? Easier said than done. Thoughts about that? He does address that, uh, and we can skip ahead just a little bit just to address that. Um, on, the, on these chairs, I passed out, and we'll get to what this engaged Buddhism is. Does anybody need one of these? There's a few extras. The 14 principles of engaged Buddhism. If you look at number three, he says, and he may be wrong, but what he says is do not force others including children, by any means whatsoever to adopt your views, whether by authority, threat, money, propaganda, or even education. However, through compassionate dialogue, help others renounce fanaticism and narrow-mindedness." Which I think is very interesting. That's not how I was raised, and I'm afraid that's probably not how I've raised Lila and Ruby and Levi, to give them permission, so much permission, to make up their own minds. I was reminded as you were talking, when, when uh, I did that class over the summer, the kind of social justice class, one of the last weeks, it might have been the last week, David Woodard graciously led a discussion on homosexuality in the church. And he, and he did a masterful job. Uh, one of the comments, though, um, was from someone who said, you know, I know we should be loving and open and welcoming and, and not angry, not judgmental, not afraid, but, you know, I, I just wonder, what should I tell my kids about gay people? You know, what, what should I tell them? Uh, and, and I don't think Woodard or I really handled that particularly well. I don't remember exactly what we said. What I wish I had said, though, is, well, what are you going to teach your kids about a number of other people? You know, if you believe that this is a problem, that homosexual is a problem, what are you going to teach your kids about greedy people? You know. Probably not a lot. You know, I haven't told my kids, here's how you should respond to greedy people um, or angry people, you know. But, but that brings us back to the judging mind, you know, where they're somehow separate from me. They're different. How, how should I engage them? And Thich Nhat Hanh would say, be open. Don't be narrow-minded. Don't think that you've got all the answers. Uh, and, and I want to I read a, a piece from this um, in just a minute um, that I think might help us with some of that. Uh, the, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Matt, sorry. Yes, yes, sorry. Yes. All this kind of reminds me, like, you get back into Philippians 2, where Jesus basically, like, what it says, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but made himself the very nature of servant. Um, it 
seems like conceptually as we go down that path, you sort of held on to a graph before this one made me think of it, but so many times, especially when you're like fantasizing about how something could be different or whatever, you're always the central character that's kind of dictating out and you know playing how things go. Whereas I think, you know, in this in this viewpoint or this mindset, you are someone that is open to what's happening and you're part of it and leading into it and learning from it as you go. And that that Philippians two has always kind of been a I can't learn from you because I'm always right kind of thing, you know, that speaks right to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was also thinking um, while you were talking about Philippians 2, Jeff uh, and Scott Owings and I meet on Friday mornings. We just kind of pray our way through the lectionary. And the, the passage I read this past Friday was from the second part of Romans 13 where Paul essentially says, you don't really owe anybody anything but love. And it's like, well, holy smoke, if that's true, that, that changes everything, you know? Yes, sir. I would think the main thing as a parent that I would want to teach my child about the gayness is if you're gay, I love you just as much as if you're not gay. This, this will not affect my love for you. I want you to be who you are, and if you're gay, there's a book, How to Teach Parents to Love Their Gay Children. But, uh, I mean, the main thing is to communicate to our child who you are. I love you just as deeply. And uh, please don't think that you have to hide from me. I mean, I, to me, that's the main lesson we teach our children. Mm-hmm. The rest of it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Kind of get specific with, with our kids. Um, I think this generation of kids are very accepting. In fact, so much so accepting that, um, you know, I mean, pretty, I don't know, several of my kids' friends are bi or considered themselves bisexual. And so, and part of that is that if I'm so open to say this isn't wrong for other people, therefore, well, I am too. You know, because I accept this, and so there's a lot of exploration, and so, and you know, in general, as we teach our children, say sexual purity is one of the avenues that we teach our kids, especially when they're teens and their hormones and everything, and so then it ends up getting specific, you know, in kind of, it's not talking about how do we treat people out here, that's not the question, it's how do we look at our own lives and, and what do we do, what choices or judgments do we make about ourselves and what we're going to do. And so it's not so much um, that outward judgment of other people because you know, for them there is no judge, judgment. It's, you know, I, I like everybody and love everybody for whatever they do. At least that's what I'm seeing you know, yeah. in a lot of them. And so it's where, where does that go? How do you instruct your kids? If you say, well, I'm, I'm okay, you know, this this couple over here and how they live their lives or a family that comes to church and they're not married, they don't choose that, but yet they will feel uncomfortable, you know, if they're not married because of the way our church thinks about marriage and encourages those relationships and families. And so, um, so there's a lot of people who may not feel comfortable for a lot of different reasons. And so 
there is there a judgment to be made about yourself in, in your own life and how we teach our kids? And, and I love this idea of, I wish we could just be in dialogue and say, what do you think about this? What do you think for your life? How do you take this? Um, but then if there are dangerous situations that they're putting themselves in, um, especially the internet, you know, mm-hmm. how, you know, then there's some, uh, if I don't say anything, they're hearing a lot mm-hmm. from everyone else. Yeah, yeah. If I'm the only one not saying, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And let's look over. Um, let's jump ahead again to uh, number fourteen, um, because one of you know, it's not like Buddhists are are, are out there promoting promiscuity, uh, but they have a different idea about it. You know, where I was raised to think it's just wrong. It's just wrong. It's one of God's rules. What they say is, uh, you preserve, you, you you handle your body with respect. You preserve your vital energies, whether it's sexual or otherwise. Um, it, it should not take place without love and commitment. And we need to be aware of future suffering that may be caused. It's, a, it's serious business, and it can result in a great deal of suffering. Um, you respect other people's rights and commitments. And so, you know, Greg and I were talking earlier, that, that means that people who are married, me being married, Anything outside that is off limits because we've made a commitment and to go outside that commitment would cause a great deal of suffering. Um, Be fully aware of the responsibility of bringing new lives into the world. Meditate on the world into which you are bringing new beings. I think, well, here what we've done is we have made it less of a arbitrary line in the sand and more of a, if, if you go this way, there is potential for great suffering, you know. And that really... I really appreciate that a lot. Yes, ma'am. All right, I've not read through all of these, so you might address you might address this one. But um, you know, the opposite of not being judgmental is not nothingness. It's continual critical thinking about what we believe and, and why we believe that. So I think when we're looking at ourselves or we're teaching our kids and I'm not saying I do a great job at this, but how do you feel about this? What do you think about this? How do you think this will make another person feel? What do you see the sufferings coming from this? Would be helpful for us to do more for for ourselves and for our our children. And I think that's a problem I see in some children is just the lack of thinking through. It's great that they accept everything, but then they don't always think through actions, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. natural consequences. Yeah. Well, like in the prayer that, or the meditation that we did, you know, he said, may I be free from attachment and aversion, but not be indifferent. Right. It's not like it doesn't matter. It matters a great deal. But he says uh, in, in, in paragraph one, do not be idolatrous about or bound to any doctrine, theory, or ideology, even Buddhist ones slash Christian ones. These systems of thought are guiding means, not necessarily absolute truth. You know, there's, there's a lot of people who think Adam and Eve were real folks, and there's a lot of people who think that, that this was a myth. And we don't have to, you know, say one is absolute truth and the other is not. Then he goes on to say, don't think the knowledge you presently possess is changeless. 
Learn and practice non-attachment from views in order to be open to receive others' viewpoints. It's like you can hold your ideas in a closed fist or you can hold them in an open hand, you know. And, and again, going to Scott Owings, who introduced me to, to Thich Nhat Hanh, he says that the, Scott is, Scott, that is, says that the essence of the spiritual life he has learned is in uh, an ability to let go. Whether it's letting go with respect to the house you're building, letting go of the, the prestige that you're seeking, uh, letting go of your own ideas about some significant things, just a willingness to hold it in an open hand so that you can receive something new if it's appropriate or let go of something, you know. And I think all of us have probably let go, you know. None of us are attending maybe the Church of Christ that we grew up in. And so we have let go of some things about instrumental music, you know, or something like that. Maybe we've received something new. Um, but if you've got your fist closed, you can either let go of things when you need to. You can't receive anything new. Yes? I think everyone as parents has had those situations where when you are trying to force your child's mind in a certain direction, how you meet that resistance. It's almost, it almost has the opposite effect. The tighter you grip on, the more they resist what you're trying. You, know, you, you have good intentions of trying to impress them with a certain idea, but it's when you, you break, you go past that point of kind of forcing them to think a certain way, it almost has the opposite effect. And it, it seems as though when developing your own moral landscape of thought growing up, that if it's someone else's morals that are being impressed on you, it has a better chance of actually um, being more solid if the person who is growing up, the person who is developing, comes to those conclusions themselves and it becomes their own moral convictions about certain things. And so as parents, it's, it's very tough because you want them, you're grasping, you're wanting them to be a certain way and have a certain outcome, but that backfiring that often happens, you know, sends them totally other direction. The classic example is the preacher's kid who, you know, feels like they have to be a certain way, but they end up being the craziest, wildest, you know, kid who kind of rejects all that because it was forced upon them. So I... I don't know, that's something I've realized in raising, raising kids. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember, I'll tell a tale on Lila. Um, we were, we were eating at Jet's Pizza in Green Hills when the announcement was made that the CEO of Apple, whatever his name was, was gay, right? Did I get that one at the CEO of Apple that came out? This gay? And it was all over the news, you know, and so it's up on the TV screen and and Lila looks up at it and says, what does it mean to be gay? It's like, great. Um, <laughs> and so we kind of explained that. And uh, she said, well, why is that on the news? And I said, well, there are a lot of people who think that that's a big problem. Um, there's passages in the Bible that talk about it, you know, being a problem. And so for somebody of his status to come out as gay, it's just news. And she just said, well, you can't help who you love. And that was it. And, and in that moment, you know, I had that choice. We all have a choice, right? Do I say, well, well, no, actually, it's like this. Or do I just kind of, you know, I explain to her why some people think it's a problem. Now it's up to her to 
do with that what she will, you know. Uh, that's, that's, that takes, I mean, you got to have faith in your kids and faith in God, I think, to, to do that kind of stuff. Um, not that that's, I'm not, I'm not the paragon of teaching virtue, you know, but um, that was just one of those moments that puts a fine point on, you know, wh what are you going to do, you know. And Anyway, um, we're almost out of time. We, it looks like we are out of time. But Thich Nhat Hanh, I want to just add that he, he, unlike maybe other Buddhist masters, is very willing to move from this practice of breathing, mindfulness, awareness, out into the world. He sees that I am intimately connected to other people's suffering. Um, the food that I eat, going back to the tomato example, if I'm eating tomatoes and the folks who are picking those tomatoes are not being paid a fair wage, or if I'm wearing clothes that I bought at a store very inexpensively, because the people who are making those clothes are not being paid, or if they're being made by children. You know, can I look at my shirt and see a child working 18 hours a day under horrible conditions, violent conditions, to make sure that I can get this shirt, you know, less expensive? Um, the extravagancies, the way that we, we want to have this, we want to have this. Well, they got this, and now I need this. They come at a cost, Thich Nhat Hanh would say, that, that none of this takes place in a vacuum. Um, we might have to look deeply to find it, uh, but it's connected. Um, we can even see a bit of ourselves in people who, who might do violence. And I was going to read a section of the books that I brought. Um, the, the one I would most encourage you to take a look at if you've not come across Thich Nhat Hanh before is this one called Living Buddha, Living Christ, in which he just does a masterful job. Uh, I guess one of the top ten books I've ever read. It's incredible about how comfortable he is talking about the kingdom of God being at hand and nirvana. And he, connect, and he shows where, in a lot of respects, we're talking about the same things. Um, and he has great respect for Jesus. I mean, and, and I think he helped me appreciate the Christian faith better. Jesus, I think, was a lot closer to the Eastern religions than he was to Western civilization. And so looking at Jesus through the, this lens, deeply helpful. Peace is every step is just a little series of very short meditations that, that I think is good. And then this is called No Death, No Fear, uh, all about impermanence, you know. He, writ, he wrote one on anger that you've read, anger, I've not read anger. He's written so many uh, very helpful books. But at one point in this No Death, No Fear, he talks about how there are pirates out there abusing people. And it's very easy for us to feel compassion for the suffering of their victims. But then he talks about the circumstances into which those people were born who later become pirates. And it's only like one page, but he does this amazing job of just saying, had I been born in those circumstances, maybe the only way out for me would to become a pirate, and I might victimize people. I can see myself in the pirate. I can see myself in the, the victim of the pirate. Um, and so the dualism is gone. You know, you see that it's all connected, you know. Uh, parting thoughts since we're, since we're out of time. Yes, ma'am, Ms. Smith.
sometimes to help their treatment we can just you know get this new way of thinking by just following a philosopher or philosopher because we like we probably most of us all tried that and failed you know to to just emulate jesus or so we have to have a born-again experience to realize that we're sinners and that Jesus Christ died for our sins and and that is a motivation for loving you know we love uh, it compels us to righteousness you know and uh, the love of God and so uh, I just think that we have to use the word of God for our guidebook whether it's raising our children or what that's just a thought I want to inject yeah I don't think that Thich Nhat Hanh would disagree with you at all. I think that he would say that Jesus the Christ transcends Christian denominations. And if you take the Bible literally that all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God, it might even transcend the boundary you know, that we tend to think separates people of different religions and cultures. Perhaps even people who have not heard of Jesus as the Christ are being led by that same Spirit. And, and he's careful to point out, he says that touching the, the Holy Spirit, he uses the word Holy Spirit, he said touching the Holy Spirit is the only real way to be transformed. Uh, he doesn't say it's a matter of self-help or changing your philosophy or getting your breathing practice right. It's a matter of an encounter with the Spirit of God, uh, which I think is terribly biblical language, you know. Any other? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I, w I would encourage you to check out Living Buddha, Living Christ, because he has a whole chapter on I am the way, the truth, and the life that I think is very illuminating. So, anything else? I've kept you all a little bit over. Yes, ma'am. Oh, Lila, go ahead. Last word. instead of just kind of accepting it as it is. What did she say? She, she said that a lot of our problems come from, from hoping we can attain perfection in ourselves, in the world, which is why when we prayed, when we did our, our prayer meditation here, we prayed that, that we would all experience love, joy, wonder, and wisdom in this life just as it is, right, without trying to change it. So, All right, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it.